ITPS podcast respectfully acknowledges that the Institute for Thomas Paine Studies, part of Iona College in New Rochelle, New York, was built on the traditional land of the past, present, and future generations of Muncie Lenape in the greater Lenape Hoking territory. I'm John Winters. Welcome to the ITPS Podcast. My guest today is Andre Jacobs. He's an enrolled tribal member of the Arutsurumut Native Council in Bethel, Alaska, and for more than a decade has been working with Pacific Northwest and Alaska Native tribes on various projects. He's fundraised and awarded more than $24 million for the construction of clinics in Southwest Alaska, served as one of Bethel, Alaska's former city council members, and currently sits on the board for public radio station KYUK AM TV, the oldest bilingual native-owned public radio station in America. Andre joins me today to talk about his work as senior manager of tribal partnerships at America 250, the federally funded entity commemorating the 250th anniversary of the American Revolution. He talks about his pathway to this position, his experiences engaging with indigenous nations across the country, his perspectives, and some of the promises, but also some of the limitations of doing indigenous history and community outreach in this once-in-a-lifetime commemorative moment. A quick note before we start. Since we recorded this episode, Andre met with the Tribal Advisory Group of America 250. So stay tuned after episode 3 for episode 3.5, where we will listen to that meeting in its entirety. Now, on to the interview. Andre, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you very much. I'm honored, honored to be here with you there, John. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you very much. Um, so to start, I'm, I'm really curious about your, your past experience. You've had a dynamic career in indigenous community help. You've been working for more than a decade with Pacific Northwest, Alaska Native pro- tribes on regional, state, federal project. I mean, the list goes on and on. So I'm really curious what drew you to the America 250 in the first place. Great question. And um, I think I need to start back uh, with letting you know that I always enjoyed storytelling. Hmm. Um, the act of it, I thought, was super important since I was a kid. Um, I was a kid reporter at a public radio station, KYUK, in uh, Bethel, Alaska, fifth grader. And um, I got a chance to interview this candidate. He was uh, running for Alaska governor at the time. His name was uh, Steve Cooper. And um, while he would go on to win uh, the governorship of Alaska, for his inaugural address when he began it, he he just mentioned me. And uh, that interview he did with this this fifth grader from Bethel, Alaska, and um, that experience for him of just some kid from out of nowhere wanting to engage Hmm. uh, with public policy, perhaps, but I wouldn't know that as a fifth grader. Um, I think that really jolted me, though, into understanding how communication works and that I can shape narrative uh, even at a young age. So I think that that was always important for me to understand the act of storytelling. Mm -hmm. I think that storytelling is a large part of what this effort is at America 250 and our commemoration. And I'd also say that um, 
growing up in Bethel, Alaska, that was a huge springboard for me. Um, some might think it's going to Western institutions, colleges, universities. I think that I really got a good uh, springboard just living in Bethel. It's a hub for 54 tribes in America. That's, uh, it's, that's kind of like living in New York City. It's dense. It's just dense with tribes there. Yeah. So because of that, I was able to work on fundraising as part of my springboard. I worked on building clinics for villages in rural Alaska as a grant writer, navigating uh, the whole fundraising, fundraising system there. Um, Bethel was also a huge springboard for me for starting a t-shirt company. Uh, I started a t-shirt company called Inga For Real, along with my buddy. And uh, we sold t-shirts that were cultural Alaskan uh, Eskimo t-shirts. Bethel was also a place that I got on our city council and was able to engage with the public. So I think that Bethel was a huge springboard for me. And also similar to that, though, was also living in New York City. I think of New York City as just a big Bethel. And to me, it's just the same. It's just that New York is on a much bigger scale, but Bethel is just a little New York City. There's another way I could look at it, too. I love that. Um, you know, but I think it elevated my experience of living, you know, in New York City, the culture, mm. understanding how the economy works. You don't really understand when you're in remote rural Alaska the way how the economy works compared to an urban center. Uh, there's art. There's the the hustle uh, of living there, I think, was really helpful for me. And, um, and the last uh, thing I'd like to mention is my mom. Um, she was a single black mother uh, raising her mixed children in remote rural Alaska. And... Uh, Understanding how she could thrive in an environment like that, even though she wasn't from there, it really instilled in me the ability to uh, be resilient, to take risk. And um, so for those reasons, I think that's what kind of brought me here today are those I enjoyed storytelling. Bethel was a springboard. Living in New York City and my mom uh, are the reasons where I can get to or where I some of the markers for where I'm at today. Hmm. And how do you see your work at America 250 reflecting some of that? Well, I think that it's a lot of this will have to do with storytelling. I believe that Native people are going to want to share, uh, inform, educate the American public. And understanding how to create those spaces, understanding how to fundraise, We've got a lot of fundraising to do for this effort. It's monumental, actually. Mm. Valuing communication, uh, valuing, uh, I, I think, op being open to new ideas like living in New York. I think a lot of those experiences um, will allow, my, allow me to be able to work in this role at America 250. It's a monumental task. I'm just one person right now. Got a, obviously a big effort, uh, but I just want to take it step by step, day by day. Right. And it's kind of like going to grad. It's like kind of like going to college. You just do it every day, go every day, attend, do your work, and eventually you will get there. And so that's how I see it in this role here. Yeah. Kind of putting, putting one foot in front of the other as, as things progress. Yeah. Very mm -hmm. interesting. Can you give us just so 
the audience understands a little bit more, can you give us an idea of one, a, a little bit more specifically about your role in America 250, but also what America 250 is exactly? Mm -hmm. And it's a monumental project. Uh, can you give us a, a little bit of a handle to grab onto here? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, let me first begin with my role at America 250 and specifically tribal partnerships, what I'm working on for 2022 for this year. It's a three-pronged approach I'm looking at for 2022. Tribal roundtables, developing a tribal advisory group, and offering programming support. So specifically for our tribal roundtables and convenings, we want to work, uh, we want to coordinate regional uh, virtual or face-to-face -face convenings with tribal representatives and organizations. There'll be periodic convenings uh, to invite participation and to build a relationship. And really, my goal is to sit back and listen hmm. for what tribes want out of this commemoration, simply to listen. So that's first uh, first effort we're going to make. Second is developing our tribal advisory group. So sent a letter out uh, back in late February to 574 federally recognized tribes to invite them to the table. Uh, so we've begun the process of developing a tribal advisory group, but there's a lot of other uh, actors, let's say, that want to be a part, that are a part of the Native community as well, besides the 574 tribes. Hmm. And what is their place as a part of the tribal advisory group? So that's one effort as well as to develop the tribal advisory group and to tackle some of these outreach efforts to the Native community. And lastly, we're offering programming support. Something we're really working on right now is uh, fundraising, because it'll be through our fundraising efforts, I think, that that'll allow us to offer some programming support uh, for tribes specifically. So those are our three efforts right now for tribal engagement. Again, tribal roundtables and convenings, a tribal advisory group, and offering programming support. Now. America 250, though, we are the uh, body that, through legislation by Congress, uh, developed a commission, and we are the uh, the foundation is the main client of the commission. We're the ones that are actualizing for the commission this commemoration or celebration, as some may call it. But I, I like the term commemoration. Uh, I think it's appropriate for the Alaska Native, Native American, and Native Hawaiian community. Hmm. I, I know it's I know it's a little bit early. You mentioned that you sent the letter out to the various nations in February. Have you heard Have you heard back? How How has this outreach performed so far? Yeah. Well, we've had we had a meet and greet um, last week, which was I would say successful. Uh, this is a first effort in a new medium called, uh, you know, the internet. <laughs> there was at our last commemoration, there was no internet. So this is a completely new area uh, for everyone, how we approach this commemoration, uh, tribal and not tribal. What we can do, though, to improve is to obviously create regional convenings uh, to get the word out. But I'm only one person. So it's going to take some time. Mm. 
this kind of connectivity, I know you and I have talked in the past in, in terms of the uh, New York Revolution 250 context, uh, and you had really interesting ideas about using the Internet, using uh, technology, both as in sort of an outreach role, but also as in this expanding communications and making projects like this accessible, whether it be social media, advertising things on Blast there or possibly even YouTube, you know, home bases in websites. So in this internet age, it's it's certainly very new. Are you seeing this as an opportunity maybe to expand a project like this far wider than had been possible before? Yes. Um we need to meet we need to meet America where it's at. Uh we're in social media, mass communication is the is the preferred tool for Americans to retrieve information. Mm. Um, you know, perhaps social media to uh, an extent as well, though it may not be a, a verifiable or newsworthy or truly newsworthy source. It is where a lot of Americans get information. And it's the same for Native American and Alaska Native tribes as well, uh, and Native Hawaiians as well. I think that there is a departure for some because though the, uh, a majority of indigenous people do live in cities, there's still a considerable number that don't and that are on reservations in villages that are remote. And so for them, we need to continue to use this traditional broadcasting, public broadcasting, specifically Indian country today for print, because those are still very useful tools. But we have to reach out using other uh, Instagram, Facebook, if we are going to make this inclusive, particularly for young Native uh, folks these days, because that is the way that they collectively tackle problems, solve you know questions about indigeneity, is in social media. Um, so that's the tool that we have to use. Yeah, very interesting. And, you know, one of the problems, one of the issues that public historians often come up against uh, when when doing work or or trying to form new relationships with indigenous communities in order to tell a more complete, holistic, real history and story about a particular moment is building trust in, in mm -hmm. cases. Have you encountered issues in this area? I mean, coming particularly from as uh, not a representative of the federal government, of course, but, you know, as, as sort of attached to the federal government in this way. Yes. And that's a great question. And here's my concern is that, and I've heard repeatedly now uh, from some in the Native community that there's emotional labor. We're asking people to retrieve their collective memory of pain and they don't get any support emotionally um, for that. They don't get paid for that. We're asking them in exchange, perhaps a book will be created or some publication or some artwork based off of these native ideas. Hmm. Their emotional labor is not being compensated. That is a huge challenge I have right now to figure out. And it's not just native communities. As we go through this commemoration, there are going to be many people that are troubled and we're asking them to bring up these pain points. And, uh, you know, especially very vulnerable people 
I, I feel that compensation for this is really important. How do we do this though? Yeah. And, and make sure that we're successful um, as a commemoration while also tackling the emotional labor issue. It needs to be addressed. It's not a tribal partnerships issue. It's not a um, America 250 issue. It's, a, it's an American issue. How do we help these people, whatever community it is, mm. native or non-native, as we engage in this monumental effort? In that initial outreach, um, say that, that letter that you sent in, in February, how did you pose that question? Well, it's a great question. And I would say that Please take a look at our website. I think that our website, this is a, I, I, I had this discussion with another person on our America 250 team earlier, mm. how we had to develop a narrative that we're engaging in a monumental effort. The language we chose to use, it was a very skillful, I'd say, attempt to bridge bringing government to government together, uh, tribal governments and the federal government together. So how are we compelling, and maybe not the word compel, but invite? Um, how do we engage? I think we have to offer trust building efforts for many years right now, hmm. because what we exemplify what we're an example of is the same kind of like a federal program coming into a community where this federal program wants to come to a community the community has to fit into the square shape even though they're a circle and it, it's of no help to the community it's only helping the federal government it's not offering a holistic approach to the tribal community so i think we're tackling how to offer a continuum and make it work holistically for a community from now into the future. You know, it partly raises the question for me, there are right these, these moments of, of connectivity and the potential for years of sort of partnership moving forward. And yes, certainly challenges along the way. But in terms of, right, if we're thinking about America 250, even at the state level, you know, there are all of these different organizations and these people working on these projects. How much does the the American Revolution itself, that history, those finite years of war actually play into the, the work that you see yourself doing and these these partnerships that you're that you're trying to build? Well, I think that our Wampanoag tribal members will make sure to let us know, you know, that they've been um Native Americans have been a part of every war in America since we began, before America began. We will begin our first convening in the Northeast out of the dignity. And uh, I think of our Northeast tribes that have had the longest ongoing continuous relationship with the federal United States government. So we're going to begin there. The war is often seen, particularly by the broader public, as this East Coast phenomenon, right? It was the triumph of George Washington in New York and New Jersey and Virginia. And there are these finite, exclusive kinds of places. But I know also that America 250 and efforts at the state level, like, like in New York's efforts to do this, there's a real motivation and there's a real effort to 
expands that idea. It's it right. It's it's not just the war. It's something bigger. It's about community. It's about looking much more broadly, much more holistically at this moment in time. And it's really about the promise of the revolution, right? Are all mm -hmm. created equal, right? So, so many questions come out mm -hmm. of this. I, I think maybe perhaps it's about expanding our definition of what founding founders are. Mm, um, yeah. Women included. You know, we have... African Americans that helped to create Washington D.C. You know, there's um, they helped to create a lot of our American cities, states, Latino community as well, Native community, women. I think we haven't allowed the word founding to include other communities, and that perhaps this commemoration offers an opportunity where finding um, mothers and fathers of a lot of America, those stories will be told. So that it's not one static narrative that doesn't encapsulate the breadth of 250 years of inertia moving forward and what collectively now, what the, the founding of what this country looks like actually is. Um, because it's beyond just documents, it's culture, it's our ideas, it's our, it's a lot of things that have not been given the just desserts that they deserve in this national narrative. That's, that's fantastic. And with that kind of broader look at, at what the revolution, this, right, this moment, this historical moment is supposed to mean. Have you yourself pitched any projects or have any of the indigenous communities that you've been working with already pitched projects in thinking about how people are conceiving of, of their participation in this project? So here's what we have right now. We have a large native community. I need to make sure that everyone's brought to the table. So here's a list of folks already that we need to include. We need to include tribal historic preservation officers. We need to include regional tribal service providers, Alaska Native corporations, Native Hawaiians, state-recognized tribes, tribal colleges and universities, uh, Native affinity groups, whether they're Native veterans groups, two-spirit groups. Uh, we have tribal, national, and community partners, tribal advisory. Uh, we have an advisory committee as well, our tribal advisory committee members. There's a lot of folks that will want to have involved with our tribal advisory group. So here's what I'd like to do is that we need to go through a governance process for a while publicly so that everyone can see how inclusive Native people can be, and that we can be a model for how this commemoration can look. So in terms of what projects right now we have specifically, it's simply to develop our tribal advisory group in the most inclusive way that's an example for the rest of America. So we are still in the very, very initial phases um, of this project in that sense. You've mentioned a monumental task, but uh, certainly, certainly work worth doing. And this one, this one is a little bit more of a, a personal question. But do you consider yourself a public historian? Good question. Okay, so um, 
I've got to talk about self-esteem first. When I was a kid growing up, um, I wasn't well, I was concerned about my nativeness. I didn't. I was raised by a single black mother, but in a subarctic rural Eskimo community. And I could not be a tradition bearer because uh, I just, I couldn't grow up with, I didn't grow up with knowledge transmitted from native elders to me, um, from my grandparents uh, or others um, in the community. But I could be a cultural leader. I could, I created a t-shirt company that promoted native identity. And so I've always felt more about the present and the future hmm. um, as a way that I think. And so to get to your question, though, um, I haven't really thought in that sense of a public historian. I've always just thought of myself as a cultural leader, a native cultural leader in my little you know, community where I grew up in, in Alaska. Public historian, though, wow. I think I've, uh, I've learned a lot of untold, uh, I've learned a lot of stories in my community, um, but I don't necessarily publicly offer them in a um, narrative sense. So I have never thought of myself in that sense as a public historian. Uh, more of a cultural leader. Thank you. And, you know, moments like these 250th anniversaries, these Sester Quincentennials, right? These big mm -hmm. fancy names for these, uh, these epochal moments and these, these big commemorative moments. There are times when people and resources come together uh, and it's all hopefully focused kind of around a single goal or at least a single topic a theme but they're also they're also really rare so in your conception of what hopefully will come in the future in already perhaps your conversations with indigenous communities around the country what is at stake in in such a commemorative moment like this a really once in a lifetime commemorative moment great question i think this is where storytelling is so important because it is so rare and there's such native people tribes are not a part of the national narrative generally ever and if they are it's stories of alcohol suicide um, jails education but there's so many stories of pride um you know uh uh i walked across the country with this group American Indian Movement back in 2008, there was never any coverage of the fact that there were 60 of us on a southern route that walked across the country um, protecting sacred sites, but it seemed pretty important. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it, there's so many stories that will be elevated, hopefully, during this experience that though this is rare and it only happens every 50 years, this is our first shot at really getting stories told on a national narrative. At previous commemorations before the 1976 one, we were entertainment, dancing. Our social issues were never a part of what the national narrative was going to be for that commemoration. So now we can elevate, truly elevate these stories because I think Americans and not, and people outside of America will be captive to understanding native narratives. I've heard a lot 
that actually, in fact, I was in a conversation yesterday with someone who met, uh, from a tribe that mentioned that they get most interest from non-Americans, from the tourists, foreign tourists, uh, more than um, Americans. This hmm. is an opportunity to change that. We can work on it with our American audiences, uh, with our American brothers and sisters um, to share a narrative that's important for all of us um, to know. So though this is rare, I think we do have a unique opportunity to elevate the stories of communities from all 574 federally recognized and all the state recognized communities as well um, that they rightfully deserve to be told. Their stories should be told. That, to me, is the essence of public history. So if I may, I very much think you are a public historian. <laughs> oh, good. Wow. Well, thank you. I'm going to have to look up historian as a word again. <laughs> <laughs> Andre, thank you so much for joining me today. This was this was really fantastic. It is a great opportunity. I'm so thankful for you to reach out. Um, you know, what we're doing is a historic effort as much support as we can get from your listening audience will be greatly appreciated um so thank you again i really really appreciate it you can find out more about andre's important work at america250.org backslash tribal that's all for today i'll see you next time